morning, everybody. Uh, can I encourage you to continue your conversations after the service, whether it's uh, in this building or as you head out into the foyer after the service? Well, uh, my mother, when she was young, loved to read Beatrix Potter. And so when uh, I had my children, I uh, remembered this and we'd spoken about it and I found a Beatrix Potter book set. And I thought, how wonderful. You know, my granny read these books to my mother. Now I can be reading them to my children. And so in this pack, I pulled out just one of the books and it was the tale of Jemima Puddleduck. I thought, oh, I'll just have a bit of a read before I read it to the children. A nice story, right? Nursery rhymes, children's stories. You know, they go through a tough time, but that all ends with a happy ending. Well, I don't know if you've read the tale of Jemima Puddle Duck. Jemima would like to lay some eggs in the farm that she lives in, but she would like to sit on them so that they hatch. But the farmer keeps taking her eggs and she's never able to actually sit on them and have ducklings of her own. So she decides that she will fly to a nearby wood where she will be able to lay her eggs and sit on them and have them hatch. It's in this wood that she meets a very friendly fox who is more than happy for her to lay her eggs in his summer house where he's not living at that time. So she does so, and the fox is so nice, he looks after the eggs for her. And when it comes to the time where she needs to sit on the eggs in the hope that they will hatch, the fox convinces her that they should have a celebratory meal before she does this. And so he sends her back to the farm to get some onions and some herbs for them to enjoy a meal together. As she is in the farm and collecting these herbs, the farm dog sees her and asks her what she's doing. And when she explains to the dog, this very friendly fox and what is gonna happen, the dog realises what's gonna happen. Now Jemima flies back to the wood. The dog gets a couple of other dogs and they run to the woods. They have a fight with the fox who runs away. Oh. Happy ending, right? Oh, except the dogs that came to save Jemima also eat the eggs. And then when Jemima gets back to the farm, she's finally able to lay her own eggs and hatch them, but only four hatch. <laughs> I was traumatised. Mum, why were you reading these books as a child? She said, oh yeah, they were a little gruesome, weren't they? So I just popped the book back in the box. We haven't really read them to our children, but they know it now because they're in the service. So, so often you think it's gonna be a nice, pleasant story, but it turns out not quite how you had anticipated. And often when we read through the Bible, we have this incredible book, our scriptures, 66 books put together in the Old Testament, we hear of creation, we have poetry, we have praise and worship and honour to our incredible God. We have victories done in God's name. 
the underdog who defeats the enemy because of God's faithfulness. In the New Testament, we hear about the incredible life and ministry of Jesus, his wisdom, his grace, his love. We hear about how the church grows and spreads under Jesus' name and then we have the revelation of what life is going to be like when finally we live in a place where there is no evil and God will be given all the glory. An incredible book that gives us hope and purpose and a destiny. But then we also have passages like the passage we're gonna look at today. And it's a reminder for us that our Bible is actually a book of stories where God the Almighty is interacting with a humanity that is broken and where evil exists. Now, last week as we are in the series on David, Tim preached on David and Bathsheba where David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed in battle to cover up his guilt. He said that was the low point of David's life. I beg to differ. Today's story, and we are well aware that there are children in the room, so I'm not going to read it from scripture, I'm just gonna read parts of it. And if you feel you have the capacity and the maturity to read 2 Samuel 13, then I encourage you to do that. Uh, at another time. But to give you an understanding of what is happening in this passage, is we hear actually of Amnon, David's eldest son. He's the heir to the throne. But he decides that he's actually in love with his half-sister Tamar. Now, life back then is very different to what life is like for us today. However, this is the same but to have relations with someone who you are related to in this way was forbidden and it was against the law. And yet Amnon did not listen. And he set up a situation where he was alone with Tamar in his bedroom and he forced himself upon her. Now she so eloquently pleaded with him not to do this. She put her case forward. She tried to find another way, but he didn't listen. And afterwards, he threw her out. And again, she pleaded with him. Because of what had happened, she no longer had a place. She could no longer get married. She would no longer have a position in society. But he didn't listen. And so we read the response from verse 19. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. This would be a robe that would declare her as a virgin princess. She put her hands on her head and went away weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister, here's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. But it didn't stop there. Absalom held true to his word and he never spoke a word, either good or bad, to Amnon. But two years later, he, put a, uh, he created a celebration for a particular season of harvest. 
and he invited Amnon and all the king's sons to come and join him for this celebration. Absalom ordered his men at the beginning of this celebration, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered and then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules and fled. In this story, a horrendous thing has happened. An evil, a wrong, a great sin. And we hear the response of two people who had the ability to respond. To begin with, we hear of David's response. King David, he is the king and ruler of the nation. He is the ultimate judge in the nation. He can make decisions that are even outside the law. He gets to have the last say on anything. And yet what is his response? Well, he is furious. He has all kinds of emotion. He's furious about what has happened to Tamar. But what does he do about it? Absolutely nothing. In this passage, in, in all of scripture, in all of history, there is nothing written about a conversation that he had with Amnon or a, a punishment that he gave to him or that something he put in place so that it would never happen again. No, he was furious, but he didn't do anything about it. Bill Arnold in his writings on this passage says, commentators often speculate about David's failure to defend Tamar and punish Amnon, perhaps insisting on marriage as prescribed by the law. If you were to take someone's virginity, it was by law that you would marry them so that they would have a place in society. It seems likely that David's consciousness of his own guilt paralyzes him. How can he chastise Amnon in light of his own sin? Perhaps David could have prevented what will soon take place. Instead, he appears the overindulgent father who becomes a passive, silent sufferer throughout the rest of the extended narrative. Here, David is upset, he is furious, he knows it's wrong, and yet he is silent. On the other hand, we have Absalom, who to begin with is also silent and actually silences Tamar as well. Now, the good thing about Absalom is he's willing to invite Tamar into his, his house. He gives her a home. She's not, she could have been you know, homeless. She could have been out on the streets. She had no place in society. She was now the lowest of the low, but he gives her a place. But to Amnon, he is as silent as David for a couple of years. And then what does he do? He takes matters into his own hands. Now, it was definitely what Amnon did was punishable by law, by every, every element of morality and justice. But was it punishable by death? No. And yet Absalom in his hatred 
escalates the punishment and takes things into his own hands. Now, these, this story, it is dealing with horrible things. And it's really easy for us to say, they are the terrible ones. That would never happen in our lives and let's hope they never do. But as we look at this passage, it is a reminder as we live in our broken, sinful world, that there is conflict and there is broken relationships, not just out there, but even in our own lives too. And each of us has a responsibility to respond in some way. Whether that conflict, whether that, that ill, whether that harm has been done to ourselves or done to someone else, we have the ability to respond. Now, I've got to admit, if I look at my life and how I've responded to conflict, I can see times when I've responded like David, where I have stayed silent and I have just let the emotion build up. I've swept it under the carpet though and not tried to deal with it. There are times where I have also dealt like Absalom, where I have let it simmer and let the emotions build to the point that I then escalate it and make it worse than what it actually was to begin with. This happens all the time in our lives. We see it in our world, but we can also see it in our own lives. How often do we have an argument and in the end we realise we're arguing about something completely different to what we started arguing about, right? It can be something as simple as does the, does the toilet paper go over or under, right? The biggest contentious you know, decision issue in some households. And it starts off by saying, why do you always move? It goes over, no, it goes under, it should go over, it goes under, and all of a sudden, everyone's yelling, you're talking about what your mother said to me, and then someone's sleeping on the couch, okay? Small things can escalate so quickly. We, if you have not had conflict in your life, it will come. There are arguments and disagreements all the time. Not just in big stories that we read in, in, in our scriptures, but also in our own lives. So how do we deal with it? Because this passage is not putting David and Absalom up on a pedestal to say, pick and choose, these are how you deal with conflict. No, it's showing how we should not deal with conflict. And living in 2023, we have the benefit that a thousand years after this particular thing happened in David's family, we have Jesus Christ who came to earth and spoke a greater way of living. In Matthew chapter five, he speaks, uh, he, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus gathers with a large crowd of his followers and he teaches them a different way of living. Not just living according to the law of the time, but living according to God's will. And to live in such a way that brings God's kingdom here on earth. And within that chapter, uh, and in the, that scripture that we have, we read in Matthew chapter five, verse 38, when he talks about conflict, 
You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. That is how nearly every law is set up, right? It's not saying, you know, if someone plucks out your eye, then you can pluck out theirs. It kind of is. It's actually saying, don't escalate things. Make it fair. That is what even our legal system is based on. If something is done to you, then you need to find a fair punishment for the person who has done it. But I tell you, Jesus goes on, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, when we read this passage initially, if we take it word for word, reading it today in our culture, it kind of sounds like Jesus is saying, well, if someone does something bad to you, let them do something worse, right? Just roll over and take it. Don't do anything about it. But already we've seen with David and Absalom, that is not a healthy way of going about things. Would Jesus really want bad things, even worse things to happen to people who were treated badly? Doesn't really sound like a kingdom of God kind of situation. So let's have a little bit of a look at some of the examples that he gives. And uh, I heard a pastor, Shane Willard, explain this in the context of first century Roman culture. Written, a book written by Richard Raw, who's a Catholic theologian, explaining what it is like in the culture that Jesus is talking into. So to begin with, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. To understand what this is saying, in regards to Richard Rod's understanding of first century Roman culture, it helps to understand that there is actually different levels of class systems within the Roman structure. There were nine different structures. Now, if you were both a four, then you would be equals. You would treat each other equally. You would have equal authority over those below you and certain responsibilities. But if you were, one person was a two and another person was a seven, then whoever was at the two level has greater authority over the people below them. They can make them do things and, uh, you know, they have greater authority, greater positions of power than anyone below them. And Jews were considered an eight. So as you can see, quite low down the pecking order. Another important thing to realise uh, in uh, Roman culture too, and in first century, is that hands were very important. In very important to know your right hand over your left hand. You see, the right hand was the clean hand. This is first century. There's no running water. You can't easily wash your hands. When you walk into a building, there's not a pump pack of hand sanitizer for you to use as you come in, okay? So therefore, your hands were important. Your right hand was the clean hand. This was what you would use to eat. You would do certain things with your right hand. Your left hand was the unclean hand. And for the sake of the children in the room, I did hear someone call it, it was the poo-poo hand. All right, just to give you a context, we all understand now, 
the kinds of activities that you would use with your left hand. Now, we have this passage. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, Michael, I'm gonna get you to come up. Promise I will not touch him, okay? But I'm going to use his gorgeous face as an example, okay? Michael, can you turn to everyone and can you just step back one? Can you point to your right cheek for me, please? Okay, so therefore, keep your hand on your right cheek, that'd be great. So if I'm in conflict with Michael, and this passage says, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, it means I have slapped Michael with my, my left hand, my unclean hand, meaning that he is below me. You would never touch an equal or someone greater than you with your left hand. It is unclean. It is not worthy of being touched with. And yet someone lower than you, well, they're already unclean, right? However, if Michael turns his other cheek and I'm to slap him on his other cheek, I'm slapping him with my, my right hand, my clean hand. Thank you, Michael. A big round of applause. <laughs> this is my clean hand. We are equals, or he is even greater than I am because you would never touch someone equal or greater than you with your left hand. Jesus is not saying in this passage, according to these norms, that you just need to be treated as someone lower and less than, but do something in such a way that is non-violent and shows equality to that person so that they show equality back to you. That's the first example he gives. Second example, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. All right, so your shirt was what you wore underneath. It covered your whole body. Your coat was the thing that kept you warm. It was thicker. It had greater purposes. You could lie it on the ground. You could use it as a blanket. You could protect things with it. All right, the coat was the more valuable item. So here Jesus is saying that if someone wants to sue you and if you don't have money to pay them, almost they are shaming you by suing you even though you have no means to pay them, then what you would do in first century is you would give them your shirt and they would hold on to your shirt until you are actually able to pay whatever they said you had to pay them. Right, that was very common part of the culture. However, here Jesus is saying, if you give them your shirt, give them your coat also. Now, this is a culture where it's not like, oh, just go to my wardrobe and choose one of the 20 other shirts that I have. If you give someone your shirt and you give them your coat, you are standing before them naked. However, in first century Roman culture, it was not shameful to be naked. However, it was shameful for someone to look upon someone who was naked. And so as someone is shaming you by taking your very belongings in order for them to be able to sue you, Jesus again is saying in a non-violent way, 
bring yourselves to be equals. That in saying, if you are shaming me, then here in my generosity, I am shaming you for what you are doing to me. Third example, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. This was very common in, uh, with Roman soldiers. They would be carrying a pack and they would often have to walk a long way. Now, this is the best picture I got of a Roman backpack. Uh, I don't know if it was officially called the Furka, but that was on the image when I got it from the internet. So, uh, and I haven't verified whether it is or not, but that's what this person called it. As you can see, it was a, a wooden cross which they carried on their back. Now, these were quite heavy. They would weigh up to 30 kilos and Roman soldiers would have to walk a long way. As you can see, not lightweight material and no, you know, ergonomic shoulder pads to make it all okay for you. These were hard things to carry. Roman soldiers were able to get anyone who was below them to carry their pack for them. However, the law was you could only get someone to carry it for one mile because the whole idea of Roman culture was to get more money for the Romans. And if you were taking someone away from their work for an extended period of time, they couldn't work, they couldn't earn money, therefore we can't tax them and we can't earn money. So there was the rule that you could only walk for one mile with a Roman soldier's pack. Here Jesus is saying, someone asks you to walk one mile, go two miles because you can guarantee that Roman soldier, once you start walking more than a mile, is going to be running you down. He can be court-martialed, he can have his pay docked because he's making you do something, supposedly, that he is not allowed to do. No longer are you his servant and his slave, but he is actually chasing you and taking off you what he has commanded you to do. If you're walking more than one mile with someone, you are their friend, you are their companion, you are their equal. In our current, more current culture, someone who said this so eloquently was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In saying that we shouldn't act like David and do nothing. We shouldn't act like Absalom and violently escalate the situation. But when there was the Montgomery uh, bus protest, after Rosa Parks, a black woman was asked to move her seat for someone who was white, and when she refused, she was arrested. There was a protest for over 13 months, protesting against the segregation that was happening even on the buses. And the people in America refused to ride on the bus for 13 months until finally, by the Supreme Court, it was considered unconstitutional to have segregation on buses. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says this, time is cluttered with the wreckage of communities which surrendered to hatred and violence. For the salvation of our nation and the salvation of mankind, we must follow another way. This does not mean that we abandon our righteous efforts, 
with every ounce of our energy, we must continue to rid this nation of the incubus of segregation. And we shall not in the process relinquish our privilege and our obligation to love. While abhorring segregation, we shall love the segregationist. This is the only way to create the beloved community. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. Jesus was not saying that we should not have a voice. Jesus was not saying that we should allow people to treat us appallingly. But he did talk about a way of love, a way of equality. And no one pushed equality greater than what Jesus Christ did here on earth in loving and talking and touching and addressing everyone, regardless of where their position was on the social standing. In fact, in Romans 3, we read, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The cross is the greatest equaliser. The cross is the ultimate act that Jesus Christ did that actually puts us all on the same playing field. The cross is a reminder to us that there is not Jew or Gentile, there is not Christian or atheist, there is not Australian or American, gay or straight, poor or rich. We are all equal. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's an equal playing field. But just as much, all have been justified freely. That is the power of the cross. It doesn't just put us all on the same playing field, but it offers every single person as well the grace and the mercy that we do not deserve, but that is given freely. And in Jesus's teaching of love and grace and mercy and discipline and direction, he desires for a kingdom of heaven where all are equal and all receive the freedom through Jesus Christ. So as we finish the service, we're actually coming into a time of communion, an opportunity for us to remember the incredible work of the cross, the incredible sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As he went to the cross, his body broken, which we remember through the element of the biscuit, his blood shed, which we remember through the element of the juice, and an equality for everyone, being reminded that all have fallen short of his glory. 
all have sinned, and yet all are welcome to come to the cross, to ask for forgiveness, and to be justified in such a way that we can step into the loving, accepting embrace of our Heavenly Father. Will you pray with me? Lord God, Jesus Christ, we thank you so much for the incredible words of wisdom that you gave, not just to the people at the time, but to people for all time. When challenges and conflict arise, God, help us not to be a passive, silent sufferer like David. Prompt us and help us not to be like Absalom who escalated the punishment. But God, may we heed your words of love and equality. And as we recognise ourselves as sinful and fallen, but freely justified, may we be able to look upon every single other person as sinful and as fallen as ourselves, but with the ability to receive your justification, your love, your grace, and your mercy through the cross of Christ. As we come to communion, Lord God, we pray, prompt in our hearts and our minds the things we need to ask for forgiveness for. And as we come, may we come with forgiveness but rejoicing, that not because of what we have done but because of what you have done, we can walk freely into a loving relationship with God who calls us his own. Thank you for the sacrifice, Jesus. Thank you for the openness and the equality that you give to each one of us. We pray this in your merciful name. Amen.